I once heard a story about a professor. A student approached him, curious about scientific observation. Very well, said the professor as he pulled out a huge yellow jar. Take this fish and look at it. Eventually, I'll test you. The student took the fish and began to observe it. He looked at it, studied it. After 10 minutes, he thought he'd seen everything that could be seen. He searched for the professor, but he was nowhere to be found. So he kept looking at the fish. 30 minutes, an hour, two hours passed. He was turning it over, looking it in the eyes, behind, beneath, above. What have you learned? asked the professor when he returned. The student rehearsed it all. The pores of the head, fleshy lips, lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin, the forked tail. The professor seemed disappointed. You haven't looked very carefully. You haven't even seen one of the most obvious features. Keep on looking. The student wanted nothing more to do with the fish. He was miserable. But he wanted to please the professor, so he looked and looked. Slowly, he discovered one new feature after another. Soon, time began to fly by as the student observed that fish, seeing all kinds of things he'd never noticed before. He realized just how right the professor had been. After another hour, he returned and heard a new list of observations. That's good, but that's not all. Go on, keep looking. And so for three long days, he put that fish before the student's eyes, forbidding him to study anything else repeating the same chorus each time, look, look, look. We have something far more valuable to explore and study and look at. The simple habit of looking at the Bible will change your life and lead you to the greatest beauty in the world. If we look long enough, with enough care, we will see things we never dreamed possible to see. Give yourself daily to look and look and look at God's Word. Don't let go or walk away until you have seen more of Him. You will be amazed by the wonders you will find. We are going to start our, our series in the book of Philippians, and we just read the passage that we're going to look at today. And uh, uh, a couple days ago, I was sitting in a cafe in Prague in the Czech Republic with my daughters, and we watched that video. I said, ah, I need to show them this video because I knew we'd be looking at the first two verses of this uh, short book of the Bible. And when I, I, after watching this video, I handed the, the Bible to one of my daughters and I said, okay, so I'm going to preach on the first two verses of this, this book and my daughter looked at me, she said, but it's just a greeting. I said, look deeper. Uh, looks like a greeting. And I said, no, we need to look. Did you just watch the video? And she's like, yeah, but I don't see you. It's just a greeting. And on one level, that's all we're going to cover today. It's just a greeting. And yet, just as with the fish, God's Word is living and active, 
Jesus would say in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, that if we would, we would look a little bit deeper, there are some profound truths even in the first two verses. There's profound truths throughout this whole book, this, this, four, this little four-chapter book uh, in the New Testament. It's the book of Philippians. Um, if you were here with us several weeks ago, we looked at a passage in Acts chapter 16 where the church gets started in Philippi. Paul uh, goes with Silas to this area of Philippi, and there's no, there's no synagogue there. There's no uh, place for people to kind of explore who God is, but he goes down to the river and he finds a Bible study going on, and he sees some women studying the Bible, and Lydia's heart is open, and and she opens her household, and her household comes to Christ, and a church is planted in Philippi. Later that day, Paul would be preaching the gospel and and delivering a a young slave girl from her demonic uh, uh, possession, and um, he gets beaten and thrown into prison, as I already mentioned earlier today, and and we find him next in prison singing singing songs and praying and praising God, and and God sends an earthquake and delivers him, and, and the jailer becomes a Christian, and we add another member to the church plan in Philippi, and this be, continues to roll out in Philippi. Now, now we're about 10 years later, and Paul is writing a letter to a church that he loves dearly. This is one of the most uh, intimate or, or personal letters that, is, is, that we have in the New Testament. But the question is, why would we study this letter? After all, the series is called uh, Philippians, The Pursuit of Joy. And, and if you've been to our website or our Facebook page, you know that we say we exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And that those are not two separate pursuits, but one pursuit. That we, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And so as we pursue God's glory, we're actually pursuing joy. And this little book is a book of joy. It's a book of intense joy. 16 times in four chapters, Paul is going to uh, mention joy and rejoicing and, and uh, having a, a gladheartedness in God. And it's important to, to think, think about that because all of us, whatever we do is a pursuit of our joy. Whatever you do, whatever person you marry, whatever job you take, whatever school you go to, whatever, whatever you will do when you leave here, whether, whether you pick to go to lunch or that, when you get the menu in front of you, it will be through this filter of what will bring me joy. And so you were created to pursue joy, and I was created to pursue joy, and yet uh, joy seems so fleeting. It, it, it seems hard to grasp. It's like holding water. It just kind of seems to be going through our hands so often. So how, how, do we, how do we pursue joy? Well, let me ask a question. Which would you choose? Option A or option B? Option A is, is this. A comfortable life that goes according to all your plans or a deep sense of contentment and joy in life. Now, it seems like a, a, a false dichotomy here. It seems like, well, A would naturally lead to B, of course. If, uh, so, so most of us, we spend our time pursuing A, hoping for B. If, 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 we, if we're comfortable and our plans begin to come, come to fruition, then, at least we tell ourselves, then we'll have joy. Then we'll have contentment. 
And so we don't, we don't even need to worry about B because that, that will happen. But the letter to the Philippian church is, Paul is going to show, actually, it's not A so much. A is actually completely independent of B. In fact, you can have B regardless of what happens in A, and yet we don't believe this, do we? We, we don't believe that A is independent of B. But, but if you think about it, we experience this. We're, we're, we're some of the most comfortable people in the history of humanity. We have more comfort today in our homes today than, than the greatest kings of the earth from 100 years ago and, be, and, and back. And so are we that much more satisfied and, and content and joyful in life? No. So there's some sort of disconnect, or, or take it this way. The reason I know A does not lead to B is because I, as I've, maybe some of you have heard me say before, but the reason I know A doesn't lead to B is because I've been to Disney World, <laughs> right? It's a make-believe world created all for the purpose of making sure everything you do, at least if you're a child, is for your joy. And there is a lot of joy to be had, don't get me wrong, but there is also a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth when I've been there. And I don't know how many times I've heard parents say, and myself come out of my own mouth, why are you crying? We're at Disney World. This is all for your joy. And it doesn't matter because even Disney World disappoints on this side of eternity. And isn't the suburbs kind of a grown-up version of Disney World with our manicured lawns and our, our options to go for so every single family member in our house could pursue their thing, their sport, their activity. And yet, again, when we pull back, we say joy isn't necessarily the thing that marks the suburbs. Like the big thing in church planning is, is you know, planning a church in a city because that's, you know, you, that's where you plan a hipster church. But, um, but when you look behind the veneer of the suburbs, what you begin to see is there is a brokenness. There is a, a longing that all of the comfort and all the leather-clad SUVs cannot satisfy our soul. And so A doesn't lead to B. In fact, Paul says, look, B is... Is, is oftentimes completely in, in opposite of A. Because Paul's not writing this letter as kind of some spiritual guru on top of a mountain saying, here's how you pursue joy. He's not the Tony Robbins of the Bible saying, if you just do these things. He, he's not sipping a latte and, and, and writing out a theological treatise on joy. He is someone who's saying, hey, I've experienced a, a deep, deep joy in my life, and I want you to experience that too, because I love this church. I love you. And where is he writing it from? Well, you probably know he's writing it from a prison cell in Rome. He's been beaten. He's been abandoned by some of the churches. He's been um, almost, uh, he's, he's almost died on several occasions. Um, he doesn't, he has an uncertain future. He, he, he has plans, and yet those plans have not come to fruition, yet he sees in this God is in control. And he, he'll say later in the book, in chapter 4, verse 12, I have found the secret, the secret for deep contentment, whether with plenty or with little, whether in good times or bad times, Paul was marked by a deep, deep sense of joy. We have come to tie our happiness and our joy to perceived circumstances. 
I say perceived circumstances because uh, even what we see, even what we experience is really only um, a very small piece of the pie. It's like staring at the sky through a, a straw and say, well, this is what the sky is like. But, but God is doing 10,000 other things in your life and mine that we don't see. I experienced that even this week. I was on Thursday this week. We were in the Czech Republic in Brno where we used to live. And uh, we had plans to be there. So our plan was we were going to continue to be missionaries there, but God had different plans. But uh, when we were living there, I said, in 2017, I have to get to Wittenberg, Germany. Wittenberg, Germany, because in 2017, that will mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which really sparked when Martin Luther, young Augustinian monk, went to the church doors at Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses on the church doors, and his students took that down, translated it into German, put it to the printing press, and that spread, and that went viral. And so this was a huge moment in the history of the church. And so I said, I've got to get to Wittenberg. And so when we had this trip to go and, and do this conference in Hungary and then visit in the Czech Republic, I said, I don't care if I'm just driving all the time. I've got to get to Wittenberg. And so uh, we invited our friends and we said, hey, it's, a, it's about a, a six-hour drive with stops to Wittenberg and um, we want to get there by lunchtime. There's a lot to see. And so I said, we're going to get up at 5.30. They're like, yeah, 5.30. And uh, we go, we, I, I, I get my kids in my car, and it's, it's 5, or, or we, we want to leave at 6. It's 5.59. I'm like, okay, we're good. And I'm waiting in the car for the other family, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. I mean, they've got one kid, right? So <laughs> anyone with one kid, they're slower than anyone else, right? If you've got multiple kids, you just go. But they've got one kid, so it's like 6.15. I'm like, got to get to Wittenberg. But then I'm also thinking... Uh, Philippians, it's not, my, I, my joy is not con- dependent on my, so then it's like 620, and I'm like getting out my door, hey, you guys doing all right in there? Because we're, we're all in the car, and they're like, yeah, we'll be on in a minute. I'm like, okay, and uh, so we're going, and finally, 630, we're out the door. I'm like, okay, so I'm already behind, and I'm driving, and it's a rainy day, and, I, and that makes me feel bummed out. I'm like, oh, it's going to be rainy and cold. I hate Europe weather, and I'm just... <laughs> I'm driving, and then we get about uh, 10, 15 miles outside of Prague, and and Google Maps says, "Uh uh-oh, rerouting, Uh, there's traffic issues. I'm like, oh, okay, joy, traffic issues. Okay, what, what, and it starts to route us. What I felt was just the worst route, and and, uh, all of a sudden, we're in these little villages outside of Prague, and for an hour and a half, two, we had a two-hour delay, and I'm like, come on, this is killing me. Like, this is messing up my whole plan. And so two hours, just kind of stop and go traffic in these little villages. Finally, we get outside of that, and, and we finally make it to Wittenberg. But it's 2 o'clock now, and it's pat. I wanted to be there by lunch, and we're like, uh. So I'm just kind of feeling this whole burden, like I'm going to preach on joy, and I'm not feeling so much joy. And uh, so I'm like, all right, let's look it up. TripAdvisor, what's a good place to go? Uh, the Wittenberger. So we, we get to, uh, to uh, Winburg, and finally I'm happy, right? And I'm taking selfies with that's a Martin Luther statue in the background. And uh, we're like, okay, let's, let's go to get something to eat. It's two hours past lunch. Uh, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, I mean, try that again. Uh, we go to the Wittenberger in Wittenberg, <laughs> and, and that was pretty cool. Um, but still, I'm kind of like, man, it's, I'm bummed. 
Now we got to wait and eat. I got to go see the sites. I got to see the church and the museum and, and the oak tree where Martin Luther burned the papal bull and all that stuff. But I'm just kind of a church history nerd. But uh, finally, we, we go in there and we're eating and we, we make our order. And uh, about right as soon as we order, in walks this group of people. We didn't know them at first. My back's turned to them. And I hear them talking. And I'm like, I recognize that voice. And, and I turn... And no, no joke, it's, I've got like five living theological heroes, and three of them come into the restaurant. Al Mo, Dr. Al Muller, president of Southern Seminary, uh, author of the, the, the podcast we listened to on the way to Wittenberg, the briefing, uh, with him is Ligon Duncan, the, the, the president of our Reformed Theological Seminary, and Mark Dever, Dever uh, of, out in Washington, D.C. And I turn around, and I see these guys, and I'm like, oh, my word. So, and my wife's freaking out. And so we, we, get a, we go over there and talk to them for a while. And um, I was like, this is awesome. The one day uh, they've ever been in Wittenberg, and the one day we're in Wittenberg, and we're in the same restaurant, and we're sitting next to them eating, and I'm listening to them, them talk about Martin Luther, because they're, they're there for a conference, not, not in Wittenberg. They're going to go to Berlin, but they're there for a conference and they're seeing the sights for the first time. And I'm just like soaking it in, listening to them talk about all this church history stuff. I know, I'm a geek, but uh, it just continues to go on. And I just realized, man, Lord, if, if I had my way, I would have been at this restaurant two hours before. But my perceived circumstances were making me so grumpy that I couldn't see that maybe God had some other purpose in this. And, then, and God just pulls back the veil a little, little bit saying, you know what, I'm, I'm in control and I'm doing all things for my glory and for your good. And so enjoy this. Well, we go on and uh, go to the Luther House Museum and, and uh, you can't see it in this picture because it's not very good lighting, but this is uh, Martin Luther's pulpit that they had, the actual pulpit that he would they took out of the church there. And um, so we, we go to the Luther house and afterwards, it's now getting later in the afternoon and we got to go to the church at, to see the doors. But we're walking down this, this road, uh, this main road in, in Wittenberg. It's kind of a, not very many people there. And all of a sudden, the fourth theological hero of my day and his family are walking down the street. And that was uh, David Platt and his family. Uh, I've met David before, so that was pretty cool, but of course he didn't remember me. Uh, but uh, so then we, we got to just talk to him, and, and talk, I was just like, look, David, I listened to this. I was, I was totally geeking out. I was like, I listened to this sermon you gave the other day. Like, who says that to someone? Uh, but I did, because I was like, in this sermon, he had, he had from memory started off his sermon reciting the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, just from memory. And that's how, he, that's how he built his sermon. So I was like, David, I just watched that sermon. That was awesome. Thank you for doing that. He's very encouraging. And so I was like, so in, in a span of two hours, I got to see all these things. Not, not to mention uh, all the things in Wittenberg. Uh, we eventually continued down and, and went to the church doors. Uh, they're now bronze doors because like in the 1700s, the wood doors burned. But now they're bronze and they have the 95 theses imprinted on them. It was, it was very cool. But um, all that to say is it really has something to do with my sermon. Uh, it's just that we are, we are slaves to our perceived circumstances, right? Like, 
You would think that all the things that God showed me that day, like, hey, I'm in control, that, that the next day I'd be fine, but I wasn't. Uh, the rental car I rented, the turbo stopped working, and I'm on the Audubon, and I'm like, oh, I don't like this. And then it was like going like 40 miles per hour, and just my joy rises and falls with my circumstances, even when I know I'm preaching this sermon this week. And I'm guessing the same is true for you, that today, if they mess up your order at Burger King, you're going to be like, I'm angry. Um, But Paul is saying there's a better way. There, there is a better way to not be tossed by the, the waves of this world and, and, and the circumstances of this world. And so Paul is going to give us what he calls the secret, the secret. In the first chapter alone, the secret begins to pop itself up. In fact, even in the first two verses, the secret begins to pop its way up. But in the book of Philippians, joy is mentioned 16 times, but more than that, the term or the word or the person of Christ is mentioned over 50 times in these four chapters. It says, our joy is found only in a joy that is lasting a joy, a joy that is a solid joy, is found only in Christ. And then 16 times in the first chapter alone, Christ Jesus is mentioned. And so the series big idea as we look at the text, and I hope that you'll do this on your own. I hope that you'll read this, even memorize some of this over the next 10 weeks as we go through this uh, series. But the series big idea is this, that joy is found in seeing and savoring Jesus. That when we fix our eyes on Jesus, all the other things in our world can come and go and our joy will find a solid footing. But we are, we're all works in process, right? That's why we need to be reminded of the gospel. That's why we need to come together and and tell each other the gospel and say, hey, we're works in progress. Um, We haven't arrived yet. We'll have bad days. We'll lose our tempers. We'll get angry. But as we we continue to remind ourselves in this, maybe God will begin to place that solid joy in our heart and our lives. So joy is found in seeing and savoring Jesus. Well, let's look at the foundation of our joy. We see it in the first two verses. We already read it, but it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Dad, that's just the greeting. <laughs> but, but we contend with with. 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable uh, for, for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be uh, complete, not lacking any good works. So, so we, we believe that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and so that there are no throwaway verses. Even if this is just a greeting, I, I think we could uh, really dig into this. Even if we just stopped at the first word, Paul Even if we, imagine just wearing a t-shirt, Paul. People are like, why are you wearing Paul? Well, let me tell you about Paul. He, we, we knew him as Saul of Tarsus. He was a murderer of the church. He hated the church. He was zealous for his self-righteousness. And God, in his mercy and grace, rescued and redeemed a persecutor of the church and made him a leader of the church. And if God can do a work like that in Paul's life, maybe God could do a work like that in my life. And so we could preach a sermon on Paul, but that's not what I'm going to preach on today. There's three words that I want to preach on. The foundation of our joy 
is not in just knowing who Christ is, but knowing who we are in light of Christ. So knowing who you are, knowing your identity shapes how you behave. So some of you are fathers, and that shapes how you behave. Some of you are mothers and and husbands and wives and students and children and and, uh, your job titles and all those things. And and with each title becomes uh, privileges and obligations. You have privileges and obligations as a father, wife, mother, daughter, son, all those things. And and there are three things that Paul is going to say in this two verses that should absolutely stun us. And I'll spend the most time on the first one because it's the one that you probably haven't thought about before. First one is this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He says we are servants, but if you have a, a newer translation in on that word, I'm um, going to invite you to highlight these servants, saints, sons and daughters. The first one is servants, but there, there should be a footnote on yours. And on the footnote, it will say, or slaves. Really, that's the more, more accurate translation. Uh, it, we, uh, we like to think of servants, that's okay, you know. In the mid, middle, medieval time, they took the Latin word servus, and that naturally goes into English to servants. But the word, the Greek word is doulos. We see it 146 times, 142 times in the New Testament as a designation for Christ's followers. They call themselves slaves of Christ. And we don't like that in our modern ears. We don't like the idea of, what do you mean? Especially as Americans, we, we like our autonomous self. We're, we, we, we determine our own future. But this becomes a very important word. The most often cited title for the Christian is a doulos, a slave. There's at least six other Greek words that Paul and the New Testament writers could have used to say servants. Nowhere in the New Testament world, in, in secular Greek or else, is, is doulos translated as merely a servant. It's always translated as a slave. But Paul and, and Timothy and throughout the New Testament, the Christians would, would, would see themselves first and foremost as owned by God. You are owned. You were bought at a price, the scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians 7. Therefore, honor God with your body. When we, when, we change, when we change doulos from slaves to servants, there are some things that we miss. See, servants are hired, slaves are owned. Servants are hired, like I'll do some work for God, but slaves are owned. Our whole lives, everything we have is God's. But here's, a, here's an important fact. If that's true of us, here's the thing. In the first century, a, a, a slave's status, worth, and prestige were directly tied to the status, worth, and prestige of the master. And if God is the master, if Jesus is the master, then your status and prestige is tied to that. So that the, the, the slave in Caesar's court was higher than anyone else in the land except for Caesar. And if we are slaves of God, that should change us. The primary purpose of a slave is to honor, obey, and please his, his or her master. And if the master is kind and good, the slave will be protected and provided for. There'd be no reason to worry. Even in the Old Testament, there's provision for this. Some people became slaves by force, another conquering army or something like that. But other people willingly gave themselves up to someone because they saw that they would be a, a good master. They would provide for them. They would give them a position in society. And so Paul joyfully writes 
that Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. One author put it this way, to be a slave of Jesus Christ is the greatest benediction imaginable. Not only is he a kind and gracious Lord, but he is also the God of the universe. His character is perfect. His love is infinite. His power matchless. His wisdom unsearchable. And his goodness beyond compare. It is no wonder then that our relationship to him as our master brings us great benefit and honor. Again, we don't like to necessarily think of it that way in our modern thing. But if you do, you begin to see if God is a good master, it is a good thing to be. Furthermore, the scripture says we're all slaves to something. Everybody is a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin, a slave to self-righteousness, or slaves to Christ, slaves to sin. In the scripture, it talks, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We are, we are born into sin, and we are slaves to sin. We, we serve it. it. It is our master Romans chapter 6, verse 20, Paul is reminding the Romans that they were slaves to sin. But sin is a cruel master. It's a cruel master. In uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And we saw that uh, a few weeks ago, Ephesians 2, 1, for you were dead in your sins and transgressions. And we see this, again, repeated throughout the New Testament, that we're either slaves to sin Slaves to self-righteousness or slaves to Christ. And sin is a cruel master. It, it promises you one thing and it gives you death in the end. Or we could be slaves to self-righteousness, which is similar. And, and certainly the apostle Paul, before his conversion, he was a slave to self-righteousness. Isaiah puts it this way, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are filthy rags. All the world's systems of religion, of trying to do more and earn God's favor, whatever label you want to put on it, is a system of self-righteousness, and you become a slave to it. Have you served enough? Have you given enough? Have you prayed enough? And it's just a matter of working harder and more and more. And as I said, Saul was this before Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, he'll unpack this a little bit more about his life before Christ. But he, he says at this point, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, look, if anyone could earn God's favor, it was me. And he said, and that's all garbage. He says, but Christ is all and is everything. So sl slaves to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is also a cruel master. It puts on us a, a burden we cannot carry. None of us have our own righteousness, and so we keep trying and trying. And Martin Luther would try this as well. As he entered into the Augustinian monastery, he, he was a law student. And then on, in July 1505, he was caught in the middle of a field in Erfurt, Germany, and a, a thunderstorm came up, and he got a, a lightning bolt struck right next to him, knocked him over, and he cried out, Saint Anne, save me, and if, if you save me, I'll, be, I'll join the monastery. And so he kept his word to much to the chagrin of his father's uh, wishes for him, and, and he went and knocked on the most strict 
uh, order of the day, which was the Augustinian monks. And he went in there, and he was, he was a monk among monks. He tried harder than all of them. When it came to uh, self-flagation and all those things, he outdid everyone else. When it came to fasting, he went many days longer. Some of the other monks would find Martin Luther sleeping in the snow um, because he felt unworthy to sleep in, in bed. He was, he was terrified of the holiness of God. And he tried harder and harder to make sure he would do all the things to earn God's favor. And so the monks each day would go and go into confession. And he'd go in there and um, some monks would say, well, I had this bad thought. I, I wanted to take brother so-and-so's bread at lunch and, and kind of these things. And they'd say, okay, do these three, three Hail, Hail Marys and, and do these things and you're, you're all good. But Luther wasn't like that. He'd go in and, and he'd, he'd be talking for 15 minutes and then 30 minutes and an hour and two hours and three hours, so much so that his, his senior who was listening to all these things would say, Martin, stop it. Why don't you go out and do some real sins that need real forgiveness, like adultery or murder or something, but don't come here with these little things. But Luther knew. He said, no, every little wickedness in my heart needs to be dealt with. And so desperately he was trying and trying and trying. It was a cruel master. It wasn't until he uh, had the opportunity to go to Wittenberg and begin to teach uh, the, first the book of Psalms and then uh, the book of Galatians and Romans that he woke up to this idea that became the impetus for the Reformation that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And the weight of all of trying and striving to earn God's favor came off of his shoulders and he was rescued and redeemed. But self-righteousness is a cruel master. Jesus put it this way, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and love lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are either a slave to sin, a slave to self-righteousness, or a slave to Christ. A slave to Christ put... Paul puts it this way in Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. You are owned, cared for, and provided for by a great and gracious master, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can serve him with gladness. I'll go through the next few more quickly, but the second one is to this. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, if you come from, a, from, my, from for example, myself, a, a Catholic background, when you see the word saints, you're like, oh, those are the really holy people. Those are a special class of people. Those are to be venerated and honored and, and prayed to uh, and, and all those things. But that's not what Paul is writing to. We don't think of the saints as just ordinary people like you guys, anyone who's a follower of Christ. But the word there is agios, or it means holy ones. And it isn't because you and I are holy in ourselves. It's because Christ has made us holy. Therefore, you are a saint, according to the scripture. Say, well, you should see my thought life and my actions. He says, no, it's not on your behavior. It's on your status before a holy God. In the scripture, we, three, we see three imputations. First is we have been imputed, uh, we have had Adam's sin imputated to us so that we were born sinners. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin, 
2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness gets imputed to us. Not only that, uh, his good deeds are imputed to us so that we come before God as saints, holy ones, righteous. You are a saint given Christ's righteousness because of him and not you. Not only that, he has given you his spirit to guide you and empower you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. To be holy means to be set apart for a special purpose. God is holy. He is different than the creation. He is set apart, and you have been made holy. Now, what, how should that affect us? If you, are, if you are a slave to Christ, that should change the way you think about how you deal with your time and money and all those things. But if you're a saint, that should change the way you think about your life as well. This is one of the most freeing things from sin that I know of. It's simply this. When you're tempted and you realize, hey, that's not who I am anymore. I am a saint. Let me live out of this reality. So we're saints. The last one is we're sons and daughters. It says this, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we, we read that and we're like, that's just a greeting. But you don't understand that how, how revolutionary it is that you and I get to call God Father. That, that He is not a God who stands far off and says, do good, do right. He, he is a God that says, you can call me Father. Jesus said, you can call God Abba, Father. And so Colossians 1 talks about we have been transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Ephesians 1 tells us that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. So if, you're, if you really live out of the reality that you are a son or daughter of God, does that not change everything? Like, do you ever worry anymore about what other people think if God is your father? Like, as much hand-wringing as we do with how, we, how other people perceive us, but God says son or daughter. That changes everything. God is our perfect heavenly father. And again, identity comes with privileges and obligations. Think about the different hats you wear. So, so as a father, I have privileges and I have obligations. And if I, if I don't live out of that reality, then it has negative consequences to my whole family. It has negative consequences to my daughters. If I don't live like a father... That hurts them and it hurts me. Same thing as an employee. You have a job. If you, don't, if you don't act like an employee, it has negative consequences. If you don't act like a wife, it has negative consequences. And so we have to ask the question, what are the privileges and obligations of these identities in Christ? Well, it's a privilege to call, call Jesus Christ Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's a, it's a, but we have an obligation to say, my life is not my own, it's your life. Do with it as you please. It's a privilege to, to say we are holy ones. We say, God, help us to live out of, out of a reality of that truth that we stand before you holy. And we have privileges and ob obligations as sons and daughters of God. So my challenge to you this week is to simply just meditate on these, these realities. Like, how should that change you? Rather than me saying, well, this is what this should do for you, for each of us, how should that change you, that you are a slave to Christ, that you are a saint, a holy one, and that you can call God your heavenly Father? How does that change the way you relate to others? How does that change how you spend your time, how you relate to God, how you deal with disruptions in your life? 
What does it mean that Jesus is your master if you're a slave of Christ? If you're a saint, if you really believed you were set apart as holy to God and with the full righteousness of Christ, what would that do for your hearts and thoughts? And as sons and daughters, since God loves you and calls you a son or daughter, how should this massive reality guide your life? And then finally, how, the, how should that shape Redemption Parker? If we got these truths and we came in here each week and into our gospel communities saying, I wear the hat of slave of God, holy one, son and daughter. I think that would have massive implications, but it, we're all in process. So that's not going to happen overnight, but over time. And part of that process is just to continue to remind ourselves of this truth. That's why each week we come to this table. It's a little low. I'm not used to this stage. By the way, next week we'll be back in our normal um, area over there in the garage or whatever you call it. Um, but this, this meal is, is to these end to make us realize who we are in Christ. That we are slaves of Christ, saints, and sons and daughters. This meal is, a, is Christ's payment for all those titles that we get to live out of. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and gave thanks to the Father. And he says, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood shed for the remission of sins. As often as you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. As we like to say here, this is not a table of any denomination, but of all who have come to experience the saving work of Christ in their life. This is a table for slaves. You have been owned by Christ. This is how he paid for you. This is a table for saints. Not because you're holy in yourself, but Christ's holiness in you makes you perfect in God's sight. This is a table for sons and daughters. It's a family table. So now, in, as, as Paul and Carol Lee come up and, and lead us one more time, uh, before you come to this table, just think about those identities that you have in Christ and ask God to begin to shape those identities, to bring them to the surface in your life. I know and confess I have, I need, I need Christ's grace in this area. I am far too easily thrown up by good circumstances and bad circumstances. And so I, I need this table as much as anyone else. But as you come to this table, we partake with your Savior. And then Paul and Carol Lee will lead us one more time. And we'll close out. Amen.